Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning, this makeshift auditorium. Uh, excited that you're here. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, would love to connect with you, shake hands, meet you after the service. I'm um, glad that you're with us. Uh, we uh, launch into this morning the last sermon in our summer sermon series entitled The Nine Virtues. Um, but if you are new, uh, don't worry, uh, this, this will be very helpful, uh, even if you haven't been around from the very beginning. In fact, I'm going to give a, a little bit of a, uh, a catching us up to speed to make sure that um, for those who are new, for those who have served in our kids' wing and have been in and out, for those who have been on summer vacation, make sure that we're all tracking rightly with uh, what we're after in this series um, we've been looking at Galatians chapter 5, Paul's uh, treatise on the fruit of the Spirit um, as he lays it out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we've been taking a passage each week on each of those virtues to understand uh, better what these virtues mean, um, what it looks like to live and breathe the air of these virtues, to, to walk by the Spirit we're ultimately after character cultivation, you could say. Uh, we, we believe that salvation comes uh, not by character cultivation, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. And yet, where a root of faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist. And so, uh, if you haven't been around or you've somehow missed it along the way, um, as it pertains to going after character cultivation, there are some things that we need to keep in mind. One... It requires a dependence upon the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, um, that we acknowledge that on our own, there's no way that we're going to cultivate these virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit. We deeply need the Spirit of God at work in us. But it's not a passive dependence. As we trust in the Spirit, we abide in Jesus. We fix our gaze upon Jesus. We spend time with Jesus. It's about a relationship. We help the sinful nature toward its final breath. We help to drive the nail a little bit deeper into the sinful nature rather than helping it off the cross like we oftentimes do. And then lastly, we breathe life into the new nature as a Christian through the ordinary means of God's grace, time in the scriptures, time in prayer, time spent with God's people, time spent purposefully seeking to excavate idols at a heart level under the dirt in our lives and, and seeking to understand what it looks like to preach the gospel to ourselves in light of, of that excavating work. And so if you'd like a, a further unpacking of, of those concepts that you see up on the screen, uh, go back and listen to the first uh, sermon in this series. I think you'll find it very helpful in expounding those ideas. But for now, we're going to take a look at a passage on the, the final virtue in Paul's list in Galatians chapter 5, the virtue of self-control. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be in the first 11 verses this morning. If you don't own a Bible, um, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. Uh, you can open up to this morning's passage in that Bible. Um, Take it with you if you don't have a copy of the Bible or if you have a translation that's really difficult to understand. Take that as the church's gift to you and uh, use it to explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. Let me pray for us and we'll just jump in and go ahead and get to work. God, thank you for saving the Apostle Paul, for using him, um, Holy Spirit. Uh, for bringing forth the inspired words that we find in Galatians chapter 5, which help us to understand the, the dichotomy between the works of the flesh and a life lived according to 
your spirit. Thank you for the opportunity to dive into each one of these virtues. Uh, Understandably, we have not uh, said everything there is to say comprehensively about each of these virtues. There is much more study to be done, but I hope and I trust that your word has not come back void and that it will not come back void this morning, that you have much to teach us. I pray ultimately that our time together uh, would uh, make much of the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, uh, the one who lived a perfect life of self-control, the life that we could never live. Uh, We love you, Jesus. We thank you for living that life, for dying in our place. Um, We pray that you would do work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit uh, during the remainder of our time this morning. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Now, there are a number of passages that we could go to in order to unpack the virtue of self-control. We could go to Luke chapter 9, the famous passage where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We could talk about self-denial as self-control, looking at a passage like this. We could talk about how self-control is intertwined with uh, cross-bearing and Christ-following. We could talk about what's at stake, the gaining of your life, the saving of your soul. We could go to Mark chapter 9, Jesus' sobering words, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And he goes on to say the same thing about your foot and and your eye. Gouge it out um, if you need to because it would be better to do so than to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Sobering words. We could talk about the degree to which we should take sin seriously based on a passage like this. We could talk about the sobering imagery that Jesus uses in order to get our attention and call us to a life of self-control. We could talk about the severity of hell as a wake-up call to embrace the virtue of self-control. We could look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9 where he talks about the race that all runners run. That, that there's a wreath to receive, and it's not a perishable one, but an imperishable prize that we go after. And so Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I, I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Like an athlete, I exercise self-control in all things so that I don't disqualify myself. Based on a passage like this, we could talk about the image of an athlete in training. The Olympics started on Friday. It's a perfect analogy, right? Why not go to 1 Corinthians 9? Why not just uh, hit that softball out of the park easily this morning? We could talk about that imperishable wreath that awaits us. What is that? And allow that to compel us, to fuel us. We could talk about the Apostle Paul's self-discipline, his unwillingness to waste punches, And all these passages are glorious. The main reason we're not going to spend time in any of these particular texts this morning is that we've looked at all of them in the past year and a half. And so if you've been around, um, the passages in Mark and Luke were a part of our I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That series last spring. The passage from 1 Corinthians was part of our Beautiful Mess series uh, from last fall. Not only that, similar to to last week, what better place to go to understand the virtue of self-control than to look at Jesus exercising it? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and and I think you'll find this passage to be both convicting and encouraging. To set the stage, uh, Jesus has uh, just been baptized in the Jordan River by John. 
the guy who invented the concept of the crunchy life, the first customer of Whole Foods in human history. You know this guy? Coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and the Father declares, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So you have this Trinitarian moment, Father, Son, Spirit, all on the scene, all present, a moment in which Jesus' identity as the beloved Son of God is declared unwaveringly. Then, verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, if your ears aren't perked, if your curiosity isn't sparked, then you just read verse 1 way too quickly. Right? The second person of the eternal Godhead is led by the third person of the eternal Godhead into a showdown with the devil of hell. That's the scene. Hollywood would lick its chops to get after that one. Going back to Galatians 5, the passage on the fruit of the Spirit, Paul talks about walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. That should cause some sort of tension in you. It does for me. I'm not sure I want the Spirit leading me if the Spirit is going to lead me into situations like he leads Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Here's where I think it's crucial that we take notice of the big picture as it pertains to our lives. That while this experience that we're about to see Jesus go through is is difficult, no doubt, it's not the most difficult that Jesus is going to go through. In fact, this moment in Matthew chapter 4 is preparing Jesus for what's to come. For moments like what he'll face in the Garden of Gethsemane. For moments like he'll face when he's up on the cross uh, and, and it's declared, you can bring yourself down at any time, Jesus. When we find ourselves in the wilderness... We've got to step back and ask the question, what is God up to in all of this? How, how are you preparing me for what's to come, God? What are you doing in this moment? I believe you're in control, and I believe that you love me and you're for me. So help me to reconcile my circumstances in light of your character, in light of your sovereignty, in light of your love. Jesus is led into the wilderness for a showdown with the devil of hell. Can you imagine that? Being led to a place of solitude for a high noon showdown with the prince of darkness. The lion of Judah is about to go several rounds in the octagon with the devouring lion of hell. That's the scene. Verse 2. And after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness grumbling, complaining. They failed the test. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness of his own, and he emerges victorious. For 40 days, Jesus has put his body on the line to declare God is better than anything, including food. He's my ultimate source of satisfaction. He's my ultimate source of sustenance. I depend on him and him alone. It's an incredible passage for getting a glimpse of Jesus' humanity. Right? He's not some superhero with a big S on his chest who, who just pretended for 30 years who put on a human-like front for the masses. God clothed himself in flesh and dwelt among us, fully human. And as a result of his full humanity, after going 40 days without food, we're told that Jesus is hungry. Shocker of the century, right? Everybody get out your study Bibles and let's look at that one. We don't have to do that, do we? Jesus doesn't eat for 40 days and we're told that he's hungry. I don't know about you, 
I get hungry sometimes 40 minutes after my last meal. This sounds like a punch in the face. I, I don't know how Jesus managed to do it. I do know that, um, according to experts, uh, it's right around the longest a human being can possibly go without doing permanent damage to his or her body. That's the state that Jesus is in. And we're told in verse 3, isn't Satan timely? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, two things are strange about this scene. Number one, the fast is over. Luke's account of the story makes it even clearer that Jesus is done with the fast. So the devil is not tempting Jesus to break the fast. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is good to eat whatever he wants. The second thing that's strange is the eating of bread in and of itself is not an abomination to the Lord. If it was, the Bazzini family would be in serious trouble. I don't know if you've met my kids, met their cheeks. They're carb lovers. Okay? One, of the, one of the one places that we can go to in this community and actually sit down for a decent meal out is Mellow Mushroom. And it's because we figured out that uh, a $4.99 half order of Parmesan pretzels can be bird fed to our children for upwards of an hour and a half as my wife and I talk to each other. We just, we just slow drip it into their mouths, just ration it out. And the reason we can do that is because our kids love bread. They love it more than anything. They'll push everything else on their plate aside to get a hold of some bread. By God's grace, he never says, thou shalt not eat Parmesan pretzels. There's nothing morally wicked about bread. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to say, I'm the bread who came down from heaven, the bread of life. So what's going on here? What what is Satan attempting to do? Scholars differ on their interpretation here. Some think that he's looking to take Jesus off of his mission uh, by getting him to assert his own self-sufficiency. The Son of Man must suffer many things, but he doesn't have to suffer like this. What do you say, Jesus? Let's make some parm pretzels. How about it? Can you relate to that? Can you just hear the enemy whispering to you, maybe even your own flesh declaring, if you're a child of God, why is everything coming unraveled for you? Maybe you need to start turning some stones to bread, taking matters into your own hands. Other scholars believe he's calling Jesus to take a good thing and to put his trust in it. It's the textbook definition of idolatry. Good things like bread, when you put your hope in them, become God things, which makes them idols. Jesus, let's take a few rocks and carve them into little edible idols. What do you think? Again, a temptation that's not too foreign to us, is it? It's not that big a deal to make your kids the center of your universe. There's nothing wrong with kids. Kids are a good thing. And yours are just so stinking adorable with their cheeks. How could you not make them the center? Just one of many examples of good things that we fashion into ultimate things. One thing that's certain about what's going down here in the wilderness in this moment is that Satan is calling both God's word and Jesus' identity into question. It's the same thing he's been doing since the very beginning. We talked about it in the story series. Genesis chapter 3, God says to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Satan comes onto the scene. What are the first words out of his mouth? Did God actually say? Did he really say? 
Fast forward back to Matthew chapter 4. God says to Jesus, the last Adam, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Satan comes onto the scene, the first words out of his mouth, if you are the son of God. In other words, did God really say as you came up out of the baptismal waters? Again, can you relate? Can you, can you just hear the enemy whispering, perhaps your flesh declaring? Can you really trust that God is who he says he is? Can you really rely on his character and promises? Is he really in control? Because it seems like your life is coming unraveled at the seams. Is his word really to be trusted? And not just his word, your identity. Do you really believe that you're loved and accepted by God? Do you really believe that he could forgive all of your sins? That you're a child of the king? What Jesus faces in the wilderness are the very things that we face daily. They're just repackaged in different ways, form-fitted to each of our individual doubts and fears. So what does Jesus do? Well, if you're feeling the tension in this moment, dying to know how to war against sin and unbelief, dying to know how to exercise the virtue of self-control in moments like these, you're going to have to wait. We'll come back to each of Jesus' responses in the end. So put a pen in it. Skipping ahead to verse 5, the second temptation. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, there it is again, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In the words of my one-year-old daughter, uh-oh. We're now told that Satan is skilled at what? Scripture memory. He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. How unnerving and sobering is that? The devil of hell spends time memorizing scripture. And then he takes it out of context and uses it to try to destroy us. Perhaps the most terrifying thing is that he's had thousands of years to get really good at it. John Piper says this might be the most sobering quote that I brought to the table in 2016. He says, Satan skips right over adultery, fornication, stealing, Lying, murder. He doesn't go into the back streets of Jerusalem and bring some prostitute out into the wilderness and present her to Jesus. Those are games for sub-devils with weak saints. That's convicting. When Satan means business with a strong saint, he sticks with religion and he uses the Bible as his textbook. Here with Jesus, again, did God really say, if you are the Son of God... You don't deserve to have even so much as your toe stubbed, much less death by crucifixion. Why don't you just have a Chris Angel moment, Jesus? Why don't you just throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple and let's watch the angels do their magic? Wouldn't that be cool? It's a manipulation of Psalm 91 at best. If we're honest, I think oftentimes we give the devil too much credit. If we're honest, we don't need the devil's help oftentimes, do we? Our flesh loves to take Bible verses and manipulate them to fit our circumstances, our longings, our plans for the future. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Very famous passages. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I love that verse, by the way. But I couldn't tell you how many times I've heard that verse misquoted. God wants to prosper me. God wants to give me hope and a future. So I'm going to lay claim to blank. Oftentimes, what's in that blank has little to nothing to do with the glory of God. Is it true that God has your welfare in mind? Absolutely. Is it true that God wants to give you hope and a future? No question. But if you read that verse in context, here's what you find. That promise to Israel found in Jeremiah 29, 11 will be theirs for the taking after 70 years of exile. We'll look at it over the course of the fall in our Daniel series that we're going to launch a couple weeks from now. After 70 years in a pagan wasteland, facing the challenges of an anti-Christian subculture, then, God says, then I'm going to take you out of Babylon. What if God promises you hope in a future on the heels of 70 years of wasteland living? Are you up for that? Or is your faith contingent upon everything going according to your plan? That's why so many people bail on Jesus in the church. Another example, Isaiah 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, Lord, send me. Isaiah has this encounter with the living God and is compelled to tell the world about him, which is a glorious thing. It's glorious when the saints of God embrace the mission of God. There's nothing wrong with the excitement associated with being sent out for the sake of the gospel. But have you ever read past verse 8? God goes on to say, Go, Isaiah, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same gospel that softens the hearts of some hardens the hearts of others. And Isaiah, your mission field is going to respond to your message with hard-heartedness. You're not going to have a lot of baptism Sundays, brother. Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, How long, O Lord? Not quite as giddy as he was in verse 8, is he? And God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, Isaiah, you're going to step on the mission field, and it's going to look worse when you're done with it. The good news, God goes on to say, is I'm preserving by my grace a remnant of people for my own glory. I'm setting them apart in the midst of of all hell breaking loose. Let me ask you this. How many missionaries have you met that declare whether the people on the mission field respond horrifically or gloriously to the gospel, there's a burning within me. I have to go. These are just a couple of verses that we slap onto coffee mugs haphazardly and use in ways that are oftentimes less than helpful. Think of all the name it and claim it verses that get manipulated in order to fuel visions of self-glory and excess. So what does Jesus do in the face of Scripture manipulation? Again, we'll come back to that in a moment. 
the third temptation, skipping ahead to verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now Satan moves from the more subtle, which doesn't seem to be working, to the more explicit. Worship me. Bow down to me, Jesus. Get the glory without the cross. How does that sound? The third attack is an explicit attempt to get Jesus to break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Satan practically establishes a call to worship in this moment. A temptation, again, that's not foreign to any of us. We're all worshipers. We all entrust our heart to people and things. It's not that some worship and some don't. Paul's great treatise on this idea that we're all worshipers is found in Romans 1. We've gone here before. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they, human beings, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, we all worship someone or something. For some of us, it's the creator. For others of us, it's created things. Even in the Christian life, we're like a ping pong ball. We bounce between the creator and the created. The question is not, are you a worshiper? It's at any given time, who or what are you worshiping? Who are those people? What are those things that compete with God for your affections? We're back to that idolatry issue again. And oftentimes, it's really difficult to determine what our idols are. Philip Ryken says this, The world is full of God substitutes and God additives, things that take the place of God in daily life. The reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have any false gods anymore, but because we have so many. We're constantly finding new things, new people to set our affections on. Calvin says it this way, he says, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We just crank them out, one after another, after another, in the pursuit of something that will satisfy our hearts. Here's the problem, coming back to Matthew chapter 4. The the devil can't give you what he promises, and in the end, you lose your soul. Anything or anyone other than God that we bow down to will not ultimately deliver us in the end. And in fact, it just might crush us. So how do we identify our own propensities toward idolatry? Let me just throw a few diagnostic questions up on the screen that that may help to surface those things underneath the dirt at a heart level. What what is it that keeps you up at night? What what do you often daydream about? What do you get excited about? If, If someone could get hold of your bank statement or your calendar what would they see what do you spend your time on your money on what is it that if you could have it would make your life finally feel complete what are those things that will devastate you if you're unable to obtain them or if they were to get stripped away from you where do you turn in times of trouble what do you run to for comfort in moments of despair these questions should help if we sit with them long enough to excavate those things that are below the surface of our hearts 
those things that compete with God for our affections. And none of these things on the list are typically bad things. Coming back to the temptation to turn stones to bread, they're oftentimes good things that become God things in our hearts. Things like a significant other, our children, work, or career, the pursuit of the perfect home, comfort in its various forms, sex, technology, sports, health and fitness, money and possessions, perhaps some sort of hobby. In Jesus' case, it appears that it's a little more cut and dry. The temptation is to worship the devil of hell himself. You might say, at least I'm only bowing down to my kids, man. At least I'm only bowing down to my career. At least I'm not bowing down to Satan. But what if we're bending our knee to the enemy at times and we don't even realize it? Satan doesn't say to Jesus, bow to me and I'll give you myself, does he? He says, bow to me and I'll give you kingdoms and glory. What if the temptation from the devil of hell himself to us is this, bow to me and I'll give you money. Bow to me and I'll give you a significant other. Bow to me and I'll give you comfort. In our minds, we see it as simply making money ultimate, making a significant other ultimate, making comfort ultimate. We can't even see the spiritual warfare oftentimes that's taking place in it all. The compromising of our convictions as we bend our knee to the evil one. So, where's the hope in this passage? Well, our greatest hope is not in ourselves, but in Jesus. And our hope is not in a Jesus that succumbed to temptation, praise God. Our hope is in a Jesus who overcame temptation. A Jesus who lived the perfect, sinless, obedient life that we could never live. The good news of the gospel, and hear this. There's so many in this room that I'm convinced need to hear this this morning. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to earn God's love by being self-controlled enough. Isn't that freeing? What a devastating message that would be. Religion says if you become more self-controlled, God will love you. So get to work pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. The gospel says God does love you, and it's his love that compels us to be more self-controlled. That if you're a Christian, Jesus took your sin and gifted you with his perfect righteous record. And what that means is that when God looks at you, He sees his son's perfect self-control. When God looks at you, he makes the same unwavering declaration that he made over Jesus when he was raised out of the baptismal waters. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Not because you're perfect, not because you're perfectly self-controlled, but because Christ is for you. Now, doesn't that amazing grace just make you want to go out and fight sin all the more. It's the kindness of God, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance. The fact that Jesus overcame temptation, living the life that we could never live, is unbelievably good news. And in light of that good news, we fight. But how? How do we practically fight to live a life of self-control when temptation comes our way? When we're faced with the temptation to question God's word, That just might happen this week for many of us. When we're faced with the temptation to question our identity in Christ. Some of you who have the propensity to despair about where you stand before God 
That just might be what you face in the days to come. When we're faced with the temptation to manipulate God's very word in moments of weakness. When we're faced with the temptation to set our affections on lesser things. Well, Jesus gives us a really helpful blueprint as we close this morning. He fights temptation with the word of God. Three times, Jesus declares God's word in the face of the enemy. In response to Satan's first temptation to turn stones to bread, verse 4, he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus declares, Satan, I'm sustained in this moment by the very words of my father, not you, the father of lies. My father declared to me, you are my beloved son. My father loves me. My father's got me, and I trust my father. In response to Satan's second temptation to convince Jesus to cast himself down from the temple. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's Deuteronomy 6, 16. Jesus declares, Satan, I'm not going to step outside of the bounds of obedience to my father. I'm not going to sidestep my father's plan for redemption. Not going to happen. In response to Satan's third temptation to have Jesus bow down to him in worship, verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy 6, 13. Jesus declares, Satan, I'm not bending my knee to you or anyone else. The only one this knee is bending to is my father. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you left the house thinking that you might need the book of Deuteronomy to fight off the enemy? or to fight against the flesh. We could say it this way. Without divine revelation, we're left with nothing more than human speculation in moments of temptation. It's so critical to feed on the word of God. We would never dream of going 40 days without physical food to nourish our bodies. How dangerous it is to think about going 40 days without spiritual food to feed our souls. And we're not just talking about one more Bible study after another. We're, we're, we're talking about taking what you've learned in Bible studies and aiming those truths at your heart. That's how you live and breathe the air of self-control. For, for some of us, the last thing we need is one more Bible study. I've said it before and I'll say it again. What terrifies me is not what I don't know about the Bible. It's what I do know that I don't apply. It's what I do know that I don't aim at my heart in moments of temptation. Some of us are in danger of becoming theological bobbleheads, ticks waiting to pop who never actually use that truth to apply it, to aim it at our hearts in moments of sin and unbelief. When we talk about preaching the gospel to to yourself, that's what we're talking about taking the truth of God's word and proclaiming it in those moments of temptation, in those moments of doubt, in those moments of weakness. Whether you're proclaiming those truths to the devil of hell or to your very flesh, and oftentimes we don't know the difference anyway, so just declare it. The fight for self-control is won as we soak in the glorious gospel that declares that we're loved by God, the glorious gospel that declares that Jesus was self-controlled in our place, and as we soak in the gospel, we wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. We have everything that we need to fight the good fight of faith. We have the gospel of God and the Word of God. And here's some more encouragement to heap on the pile. Verse 11, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Uh, We're told that a host of angels um, are made available to Jesus in in this moment. Can you imagine how encouraging that is? Just all of a sudden this "Ah," moment where, you know, a glorious host of angelic beings shows up on the scene in your moment of temptation. 
Who of us wouldn't want that? Here's the crazy thing to think about. You and I have something better. Jesus was ministered to by angels. You and I are ministered to by Jesus. Hebrews 4 puts it this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Have you ever been tempted uh, to uh, question God's word? Have you ever been tempted to question your identity before the Lord? Jesus knows what that's like. That's crazy. Have you ever been tempted to manipulate God's word in moments of weakness, to set your affections on lesser things? Jesus knows what that's like too. He can sympathize in those moments of weakness. We don't serve a God who has no clue of what we're going through, who's so far removed from our story. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus understands what you're going through. You can talk to him in times of weakness. The curtain has been torn. We have access to God in moments of greatest need, moments of greatest doubt, moments of greatest temptation. We have the gospel of God, we have the word of God, and we have the very ear of God. That's amazing grace. We're going to take communion in a moment. Uh, For those of you who don't know, uh, this morning is uh, one of two big pushes to sign up for community groups. And, and let me pitch this to you in this way. Um, you, you don't just have the gospel of God, the word of God, and the ear of God. You actually also have the family of God. It, it's so strange how we function as an enemy of our own joy oftentimes that uh, we oftentimes declare, you know what, I'm just going to figure this out on my own. We oftentimes run to Matthew 4 out into the wilderness on our own to fight the very prowling lion of hell in our own strength. When God has gifted us with a community of believers who surround us to come alongside of us to rally with us to help throw those punches with purpose. What a gift. We don't have to go out and do it on our own. We don't have to relive Matthew chapter 4. What a gift the church is. And so for those of you who are thinking, you know, I, this is just the second thing that you guys do because churches are weird if they only do one thing, which is to gather on Sunday. You have to do a second thing, right? And so community groups, that's your thing. That's not, that's not what this is. Um, in fact, we believe deeply that community groups allow us to press into things that this space doesn't allow for. There is no way for me to aim an arrow with precision at your very heart, every one of you in this room. It's impossible. At best, I'm shooting buckshot on any given Sunday. And so what you now get to do if you participate in a community group, and and this is a reductionistic way of explaining it because it's about far more than the two hours we meet in living rooms, but, but you get an opportunity to get smaller, to be known, to know others, to begin to learn what sin and unbelief and doubt looks like in their life, to share what that looks like in your life, and to see how the gospel actually applies so that we can grow in intimacy with God. It's a glorious opportunity. And so it's one I invite you into this morning. We'll do it again next Sunday. We're going to be very purposeful in this. Um, When the communion servers come up in just a few minutes, um, they're actually going to take the bread and the cup and move it off the table and put a basket on each of these tables. You'll notice underneath uh, the chair in front of you, there's a red rectangular card with a community group logo on it. Um, 
if you're so inclined, uh, if you're interested in uh, being in a community group or even just learning more about what groups are, what purpose they're meant to serve um, in a more robust way, then there's a space for comments. You can let us know those things. Um, take time even uh, during this next song to fill that out. Um, if, if it's nothing more than uh, just send me more information, here's my email address. I'm not sure I want to be in a group yet. That, that's a huge win. For some of us, that is a, a leap out of the plane with what feels like an absence of a parachute. If you're in a community group, you've historically been in one, fill a card out anyway. We need to know that you want to continue in the same group or, or if you want to be a part of a different group. Um, if you're new and you've connected to someone in this church or perhaps a group of people and you're going, I'd like to explore this, but I want to be in that group because that person's been the bridge to this church for me. You can let us know these things uh, on that card. If you're a student, if you're a teenager, uh, we will launch our student community group uh, in just a couple weeks. Um, fill out a card as well and just write in the comments, student community group and, uh, and contact info. And we'll get you what you need to know in order to connect with that group when it, when it launches. My hope is that, that you see um, coming out of even a passage like this this morning that that the fight to wield the sword of the Spirit in, in an effort to grow in the virtue of self-control is an exercise in futility and isolation. It just can't be done. And so we extend a gift this morning for you to be a part of. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.